This is a podcast from ABC Radio Overnights. I'm Rod Quinn. For some fans, he was the character in Almost Famous who explained about a fax machine. For others, he was an exotic name in the pages and often on the cover of Rolling Stone magazine. Now he's the star of a documentary about his life, his city and his family. Ben Fong Torres is our very special guest this morning. Ben, welcome to Overnight. Thank you very much, Rod. So Rolling Stone was a magazine that kind of redefined journalism in a way. It really embraced that new journalism by making the writers as big a name as the subjects. Is that something you were comfortable with? Because your name was often on the front cover or it was in big, bold type. That The fact that it was the interview by Ben Fong Torres, that was as big a deal perhaps as some of the people that you were talking to. Well, right. I never took it as a big deal. I saw other magazines uh, running big bylines like Esquire and probably GQ and perhaps Life and maybe not Life because Time Life Corporation pretty clamped down on uh, paying attention to the writers. But no, I didn't think of it as a big deal. And I did not uh, get into the new journalism thing. I was pretty much the old school. And all of the innovations that people have <laughs> credited me with are the product of uh, deadlines. And so it was just a matter of running home with um, either tapes or transcripts or written notes, and then having only a day or two to write out, uh, whether it's a thousand words or 7,000, you were given that amount of time. And so sometimes you try to innovate to get through the piece, the story, the theme, the characters, and wrap it up uh, in the amount of space that you were being given, uh, or I gave myself as an editor. So it was it was just really plain old hard work is what we did. And yes, there were a couple of stars who emerged with their own particular style of journalism and their attitude and approach to it, like Hunter Thompson and Tom Wolfe, who was already doing new when he came to Rolling Stone with a couple of uh, special pieces. But I don't think anybody sat around saying, I'm creating new journalism. It was really just, I'm doing what I do, and here is a platform that is willing to publish it, unlike many other magazines. And so that is what helped to make Rolling Stone more distinguished. You talk about those cassettes. One of the amazing things about this documentary on Netflix at the moment is that you've kept, it seems, nearly every interview that you ever conducted or every time you talk to someone, all those cassettes are still there and we hear the voices of those stars. Jim Morrison, for example, long dead now, more than 50 years dead, you have those interviews. Why did you keep them all at the time? Did you think, well, hang on, this is historic, I want to make sure that this is preserved? Oh, not at all, not at all. It's accidental and, in fact, there are many interviews I did where I didn't keep the cassettes. And the reason that we didn't keep them was uh, because of money. These cassettes cost 49 cents each at the drugstore. (laughs) So uh, quite often we would just use them over again for another interview. And it didn't matter what the interview subjects were. It was just, okay, well, I'm out of uh, tapes. I'll just take this one that says Rod Stewart, you know, (laughs) whatever. So it might be a radio station air check. It might be Mick Jagger. So... No, uh, I happen to have kept these tapes uh, just because I didn't see a reason to throw away six tapes labeled Ray Charles. <laughs> I, I thought 
maybe I thought that in the future there might be another article about Mr. Charles and this would be uh, of use. I did not think about books. I didn't think about radio or TV shows. Uh, we were too early in the game for anything technological like podcasts uh, or satellite radio. None of that was was going on in our heads. Yeah, I was not really a saver. I don't have souvenirs and memorabilia to speak of. I have a few things from some tours and some stories. I still have my Bob Dylan concert ticket from Chicago Stadium, for example. A couple of buttons and badges that are just kind of funny. Uh, so I, I threw them into a box and didn't bother throwing them away. But nothing as though I was waiting around for eBay to be invented. You know, <laughs> none of that. It was really just a matter of that's just how I felt about uh, those items. And then when Suzanne came along 10, 11 years ago, I happened to have all that stuff. Surely, though, working at Rolling Stone for as long as you did, about 15 years or so, you would have been given a lot of stuff over the years, whether it be records, eventually CDs, books, tickets, tours. You didn't keep all of those things? Well, I kept some, uh, but no, I, I, it just was not of value to me. I mean, we were rolling along on a two-week deadline. The deadline ruled everything in our uh, professional lives there. And as a free form and hippie, uh, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, as Rolling Stone might have been painted with in terms of imagery. The fact was that we were a professional publication putting out a, a product every two weeks. And if we messed around too much and paid attention to things like keeping memorabilia or having our pictures taken with our subjects, uh, we wouldn't have gotten anywhere. And that's one of the things about uh, me <laughs> is that I never asked to pose with a celebrity interview subject, the photographs that there are, are by the choice of the photographer on assignment, especially Annie Leibovitz, who might have posed Marvin Gaye and me for one shot. But, you know, Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones, uh, George Harrison, Ike and Tina Turner, Gladys Knight and the Phipps, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, the Eagles, Pretty much everybody that I ran into, and even locally here in San Francisco, you have major celebrities, Jerry Garcia and the Grateful Dead, Grace Slick and the Airplane, and Janice and Big Brother. I had occasion to run with them and just never got a photo. Bonnie Raitt, one of my favorite singers, and we toured together, and then I would run into her at various uh, events locally because she moved to not far away from San Francisco years ago, and yet, no. I have never asked for a photograph. Olivia Newton-John, come on. Who wouldn't <laughs> want a photograph with, with Olivia? But, you and know, even it, occasionally, you know, when I talk to an author, I'll get them to sign the book. Did you ever ask them to sign an album or do anything for you? No, no. If, if I did, I have forgotten, and I may have. I, I will not say that I never did ask for that. But cozying up to a subject, yeah. either before or after you've done the interview, or, or the tour, or you know, however long the visit was, between an hour and four days, there's just never an appropriate time, in my view, for cozying up and saying, oh, would you mind signing your yeah. album? Uh, okay. you know, why are you suddenly a fanboy? You know, right. you're a rip because in Almost Famous, and that's most people's idea of what Rolling Stone was like, whether it was or it wasn't, Lester Bangs, who didn't write for Rolling Stone, I think at that point, his advice mm -hmm. to William Miller, the character kind of based on Cameron Crowe, is, you know, they're going to offer you all this stuff. They're going to be your friend. Just don't take any notice of that. Don't do that. You didn't need to be told that. That was your view anyway. Right. 
and I came from uh, journalism at uh, San Francisco State University, as did my uh, good friend Tom Garricky, who lives in Roselle, by the way. Hello there, Tom. And uh, <laughs> uh, so we were well-trained at San Francisco State. We put out a daily newspaper on campus, and I rose to editor-in-chief and a couple of other steps along the way. So we were tasked every day with following the kind of lessons we were being taught in classrooms and in the journalism, uh, in, the, in the Gator, the name of the paper was the Gator, uh, the Gator offices itself. We sort of policed each other and looked over each other, edited each other and helped each other. And so by the time I left SF State and, and then moved on to Rolling Stone, I kind of knew the way to do an interview and how to edit a story and how to be concise and when to do feature writing versus uh, straight news writing and all of that. And so, and that's one reason I think that Jan Winner uh, hired me because yeah. he knew that I had some of that kind of experience. Ben Fong Torres is our guest. Let's go back prior to that though, because he grew up in the Bay Area, San Francisco, Oakland area, you went to the final Beatles concert, that concert, I think, on August 29, 1966. What was that experience like? Because looking at the footage in the documentary, they are miles away in the middle of this baseball stadium, and you're up in the grandstand. Barely would have heard them, and I'm sure the girls were all screaming. What was that experience like? Yeah, I didn't hear them, and the Beatles didn't hear themselves. That's what it was like. I guess they had gotten used to it by that time because they had already had two years of Beatlemania, and they knew better than to expect to be heard properly. And back then, of course, this is before state-of-the-art sound systems, and so you really had just a couple of speakers on risers uh, on top of second base. Uh, if you know baseball, you know where that is, pretty much the center of the diamond. And so uh, for us spectators, and I was uh, allowed to go into the press box for this baseball stadium, to watch from there. So that's about two levels up and very far away. And it was my first uh, rock and roll concert experience to speak of. So it was interesting that it was such a great distance where you could barely make out the boys, as George Martin called them, and barely hear them. And they were such a phenomenon that, as Paul McCartney described to me, they just basically raced through their 10 or 11 song set and got it done in about 25 or 30 minutes. And then they raced off of there into an armored car and off they went. And so it was good that they had about three or four opening acts so that the <laughs> audience could at least hear a bit more music, although none of them were there for anybody but the uh, Fab Four. So it was a, an interesting early experience with, with uh, a rock concert. I was not writing for any, well, I was actually writing for what they call a shopper here. That would be a neighborhood newspaper, and it was called a shopper because they carried a lot of uh, supermarket advertising. I was writing a little goofy little column for the Lakeshore Times, and when I heard the Beatles were going to be playing Candlestick Park, I just wrote the promoter and said, hi, writing for Lakeshore Times, I'd like to cover the Beatles, and I got sent this uh, press pass. And so that's how that's how loose it was back then. Yeah. Uh, so that was my experience. And I know I noted that George Harrison wore white socks. That was what that was my big scoop in my <laughs> coverage of the Beatles. George Harrison toured America in 1974. And that's when you're at your prime, perhaps, in, at Rolling Stone. And that was a, 
a tour that was very poorly received, and George took exception to that. In fact, he didn't really tour again till Japan in 1992. What? Wow. You know, what responsibility did Rolling Stone have to its audience and what happens when you really annoy a major rock star like George Harrison? <laughs> well, he sings Monty Python to you. That's what happens when he gets annoyed. But, you know, Rolling Stone is uh, supposed to serve the, the readership and serve it with uh, honesty and candor. And you know, it's nothing to stand on a platform and brag about. It's just what you're taught. And that's just what a magazine is expected to do for its readers. And so that's exactly what happened, was that we covered the George Harrison beginning of his tour, and it began poorly, partly because he overtaxed his throat from rehearsing too much. He also brought on stage, and uh, an in the planning stages, an attitude that he was going to be his own man and do the show he wanted to do. And that would be an hour of Indian music from Ravi Shankar. And he would also do almost no Beatles music. This is at a time when the Beatles had broken up just a few years before. And of course, their music is still all over the place. People still love them. And here's a chance to see Beatle George. Well, he said very clearly at a press conference, I'm no longer Beatle George. If you want the Beatles, go see Wings. And so <laughs> he did only a couple of Beatles songs and even there mangled, or well, he didn't mangle, but he adjusted the lyrics, shall we say, to reflect his spiritual uh, nature at that yeah, time. He changed In My Life to In My Life, I Love God More. And that was yeah. a John Lennon song. That wasn't even one of his That's own right. songs. Yeah, so... Uh, what happened was then a number of the fans at the first shows expressed their disappointment. Uh, his management, record label, and the concert promoter, the late great Bill Graham, expressed their disappointment because they all want the audiences to enjoy themselves. It's show business, all right? It's part show and part business. And George was just so stubborn holding his ground, and that was the setting of my meeting him for the first time since I saw him in White Sox. And so backstage at the Forum in Inglewood, California, maybe it was between sets, I'm not sure, but we had a little, we went jaw to jaw, where I'm just kind of taking the side of the people who are somewhat disappointed. And he says, there's no reason for them to be disappointed. They came to see a show, I'm giving them a show. I'm being true to who I am. That's all I can say. And, and I, I'm not in control. You know, uh, Krishna is in control. I'm just a little dog being led by the master. And somehow a question I asked led him to use the lumberjack song uh, from Monty Python to characterize what he was feeling. And so he began to sing the lumberjack song to me backstage at the forum. I, I thought this is a rather remarkable moment. If only he'd done that on stage, he might have won over the audience. <laughs> oh, God, yes. Ben Fong Torres is our guest. It sounds like you could have gone anywhere, covered any tour, any star that you liked. Obviously, there were some restrictions with you know budgets, but you got to a point where you could do anything you wanted. Is that right? Uh, I mean, maybe, but no, I... I I was never a pushy guy. I knew my place and that it was pretty high up. And I had my responsibilities on a day-to-day -day basis uh, at Rolling Stone that would uh, go over the editorial line. That is, I uh, had a budget 
for music coverage. I had a, a number of correspondents around the country and the world to uh, watch over. I uh, did everything from cover stories and cover headlines to photo captions to headlines in the uh, magazine itself to you know, just the, the random notes was also uh, my responsibility, pulling in items from everywhere and cranking out a page full of, uh, of mostly gossipy items. So when there was an artist who was encamped in, say, New York City or um, in London, wherever, uh, I, I had no reason to not just assign somebody we had nearby. And so we had a New York bureau, we had uh, an Austin, Texas bureau, and we had obviously Los Angeles and New York, we had London, and we had people willing to go pretty much anywhere we wanted for a story, and they were all very good writers. And so, no, I, I had none of that feeling of, oh, well, they're so big, you know, and this is their big tour, I've got to cover it. No, no, we, okay. we had Andrew Bailey, we had uh, the Robert Greenfield, we had Jonathan Cott, you know, we, we had Lorraine Alterman, we had Judith Sims, you know, we, we were fine uh, assigning stories to uh, other folks. I was not a byline hog. One of the things I once read about Rolling Stone was that as part of the interview process for uh, new people who wanted to work there, that quite often they were asked their star sign. Was that right? <laughs> I, I think it happened once. Okay. Once is enough. It must be in one of those uh, biographies of Rolling Stone. I'm sure that it did happen. Uh, so, but no, I, I did not ask Cameron Crowe what sign he was. <laughs> he appears in the movie. He wrote that love letter, really, to Rolling Stone with the movie Almost Famous. How accurate is that film? Oh, it's a Hollywood film. So that should be your answer because he was in the middle of this uh, sensation, uh, this uh, series of events, this time of our lives. He was probably very true and accurate depicting his own feelings of being in this storm and, and loving it and loving the people who not only made the music, but the people behind the scenes. And so he did that. But in terms of depicting Rolling Stone and uh, the story that he was assigned and how he got the assignment and uh, how he was treated when the band refuted the story, all of that is basically fabrication mm -hmm. and it is to drive the story arc. And so on, from my point of view, I completely understand that. I just have to go and explain to folks that no, Rolling Stone never treated a writer that way of disbelieving them in favor of a stoned rock band. <laughs> and I, I never hired a young writer who I had already met in Inglewood at the, at the forum at a Stones concert without knowing approximately how old he was. That He <laughs> fooled me by adopting a, a lower voice than even I have, assigning him a story and going up to $1,000, sight unseen. And then, you know, the, all the various things of chasing him around the country, uh, looking for this for him to turn in the story. The fact was that I was out around the country chasing stories, too, alongside Cameron and several other writers because we had a magazine to fill. Mm. So, you know, altogether, though, Almost Famous has been very good to me and gave my, my name a new life among a new generation of rock fans. And so, and now on top of that comes like a Rolling Stone. Altogether, Almost Famous and Cameron Crowe have been very good to me. And that's why I particularly enjoyed the segment in the yeah. documentary where we 
uh, goof around with each other because that's pretty much what we did. Exactly. Like a Rolling Stone, The Life and Times of Ben Fong Torres is the documentary on Netflix at the moment. Ben is our guest this morning. Music in those days changed maybe a little bit from the late 60s through to the 1980s. Now it seems, to me anyway, it is totally different. Is that something that you see as well? I can't enjoy modern music in a way, modern popular music, the way that I did throughout the 60s, 70s and into the 80s. Well, that is natural for a person who grows and his or her life uh, and priorities change and his or her musical changes and entertainment uh, in general change. And there is that rebellious streak in rock and roll among the young people who want to do something against what they grew up with. So you have the uh, punk backlash against corporate rock or you have the disco uh, response to punk or you have corporate rock in response to the uh, original rock and rollers. And so it goes on like that, cyclically almost, uh, from decade to decade. Uh, a person who has grown up with music from the 60s is not expected to understand and to like the music of today, to like boy bands or K-pop or, you know, all, all of the high production, all of the techno tricks to uh, change and adjust a voice to make it sound like they're actually in tune. And... <laughs> all the other things that go on with today's pop sounds. But fortunately, through all of those sounds, there are still going to be those messages that say something about the state of uh, the world. And there are always going to be some just fantastic, superb talents, whether vocally or in other ways. So a, a Bruno Mars and Silk Sonic come along and remind you of some of the purest, best R&B of the 70s. A Lady Gaga comes along and reminds you about show business values and of honoring the predecessors uh, to her own uh, climb to stardom. And so she honors Liza Minnelli and Tony Bennett and no doubt many others. And so, you know, um, it, it, that's just the way it goes. And you're not expected to uh, be an avid fan for 40 years. <laughs> Are you though? Are you still someone who's able to enjoy modern music the way that you did when you were a teenager? Well, yeah, but I never enjoyed all of the music that I that I heard as a teenager and then into the Rolling Stone years. And so the same is true today. I point I just pointed out a number of, of voices I, I do like, you know, besides uh, Gaga and uh, Mars. Uh, I can say that uh, I think I think Adele is a superb singer. Uh, I loved Amy Winehouse. I love uh, Shelby Lynn. I do like a lot of the uh, people who are still on who are on the charts today. And I don't like some of the sounds I hear, sure. but that is that's just natural. That's but just all natural. those stars you mentioned are people who could easily have fit in, as you mentioned with Bruno Mars. That sounds like the seventies to me. That doesn't sound like today. All those stars are people who could easily have fit in in the sixties or seventies. Well, yeah. So what? Uh, those are times when we had some superb music. Yeah. So the fact that we're hearing echoes. Uh, of those times, that's just fine. Whether I, I don't need to categorize music as modern or not. You know, it's just good or not. You wrote your final cover story for Rolling Stone in 1982, I think it was, on Steve Martin, mm. who appears very nicely of him in the film. Yet you're still associated with Rolling Stone. This is 40 years ago since you last wrote that cover story. Is that a concern or are you just happy to be remembered? I don't need 
to be remembered for anything. I'm happy to be aligned with Rolling Stone. You know, it could be Reader's Digest uh, <laughs> or Popular Mechanics. So given the choice, I think Rolling Stone is still a pretty cool association to, uh, to have attached to your name. I'm pretty proud of my work. And so for Suzanne to come along 10, 11 years ago and say, hey, let's do this. And I had no idea how it would work out, but it looks like this is going to be a, a nice kind of a legacy piece, mm. a reminder that uh, behind the scenes uh, at rock magazines and other media, there were people who worked hard, uh, had some principles, and also had a lot of fun and bridged the generations from then to now. I'm still doing online radio at moonalisradio.com. I'm on Pandora with a little show called Stories with Ben Fontoris. I'm on Live 365 with a show I put together just for the documentary Radio BFT. And I work for a facility, an all-in-one music hub called um, Music City San Francisco that's hopefully opening later on this year. I'm kind of curating a mini museum of exhibits uh, chronicling Bay Area music history. Uh, so I'm staying busy enough. It certainly sounds it, like it. But I will yeah. point out, for those who think, well, the movie is only about your life at Rolling Stone or your life in the music biz, it really isn't, of course, because it's about your family history, some triumphs and some tragedy in that family history, and also the city of San Francisco as well. It seems to me that's far more important in telling your story than what you were doing for a few years at Rolling Stone. Yes, you're completely correct, Rod. The great novelist Herbert Gold was in attendance at one of the screenings here in San Francisco. And afterwards, uh, he was asked what he thought of it. And he was standing there in the audience and he said, well, and this is Herb Gold, who is 93 years old. So he stands up and says, well, I found it uh, uh, remarkable that uh, Suzanne, the editor, uh, the director and, and uh, producer, uh, was able to uh, hit four streams in one film. You had the evocation of the 60s and the protests and the changes of that era. You had rock and roll. You had journalism. And you had an immigration story of an immigrant Chinese family raising children, one of whom then went on to become an editor and writer at Rolling Stone. Four streams. And the audience went nuts. You know, this, <laughs> wow. He just encapsulated the film that cogently and concisely. And so, and you just did uh, very much the same thing. So perhaps one day you'll be a fable novelist like Herb Gold. I'm working on my first. Just before we go, I can see you and I can see your room there, which has Hi. a framed record there that I'd love to know what it is and a picture huh. of Elvis as well. Yeah. Why you got a picture yeah. of Elvis, of all the people that you must have uh, met over the years? And what's the records you've got? <laughs> as Ben goes to look at it and then comes back to us. The uh, gold record is not anything I had anything to do with except receiving it as a, a gift from a friend uh, who, who knows uh, of my love of Elvis. So it's Are You Lonesome Tonight gold record. And on top of that is a 45 that I made in 1963 in the spring called Hey Jackie, in which I portrayed uh, President Kennedy. And this is after the album, The First Family with Vaughn Meter Great came album. out. And was sensation with Vaughn doing JFK. And so a, a friend of my sister, Sarah's, 
who was in the movie, ran a bar and a record label in San Francisco. And they were just saying, oh, how can we exploit this now? Can, what about a top 40 teen version of the first family? Just a song. And my sister said, oh, my little brother, Ben, he does JFK voices. And he writes parody songs. I was about maybe, let's see, this is 63. So I'm about 18. She calls and says, can you do this? And I sat down and, and I thought of a song. Uh, hey, Paula was a big hit record uh, at that time. So I said, okay, then, hey, Jackie. And then their other hit was Young Lovers. So I said, okay, Young Brothers, you know, Teddy and uh, Robert. And so I wrote up the song and we, we actually went into a recording studio with real musicians and we cranked out that record and sold about maybe in single digits. But hey, what the heck, it was a record. So that's what that record is. And Elvis, uh, yeah, I was a big fan of his from the very beginning. And when I was stuck in Texas for that one year on Route 66, I had a chance to hear more of him and begin to try, like every kid did, try to be Elvis, uh, holding a little ukulele and singing I Beg of You or Teddy Bear or whatever. And I do that to this day, sadly enough. I'm booked for a nightclub, uh, the Makeout Room, uh, an Elvis special at the end of June. I've done a twice or three times before, working with a full band and singing songs like Love Me or uh, A Little Sister, pretty much whatever I figure I can do. And so uh, that continues. And you do sing in the film as well. Did you ever get to meet or see Elvis uh, in concert? Oh, well, now, Rod, Rod, Rod. It was one day when a friend of mine, the singer-songwriter, Jackie DeShannon, we had become pals, and she said, hey, I'm going to Vegas to see Elvis. Uh, they were pals. And so she said, come along. And I said, uh, I'd love to, but let me check. Oh, oh, shoot. I have to uh, go to L.A. and interview John Kay of Steppenwolf that day. So I can't go with you. So I did the story and came back. And she said, you idiot. You know, Elvis and I sat in the kitchen at the International or the Hilton or whatever hotel he had a run uh, at uh, in at that time. And uh, you could have been there. And so that was my one chance to meet Elvis. But I did see him a couple of times and you know, had various little two degrees of separation associations with him. But I blew my one shot at hanging out with the king, baby. Ben, it has been a great pleasure talking to you. I've read your work over so many years and always enjoyed it. And I do appreciate the fact that we've had the chance to talk. And thank you so much. And best of luck with the documentary which is called Like a Rolling Stone, The Life and Times of Ben Fong Torres. Ben, thanks so much. Thank you. Enjoy it. Overnights with Rod Quinn on ABC Radio.